Hi, my name's Paul. And my name is Pyle. And you're listening to No, no Garnish. So, Paul, you've got a mystery episode. So, listeners, yeah. normally we have a very, very quick debrief before the show. But this time, Paul has refused any information. He's literally, like, when I looked in his file, he had redacted all the information, <laughs> like some sort of government agent. And it said, like, not for Reese's eyes all over it. Sometimes I just like to surprise you. Ah. Oh. Surprise, surprise. And the first surprise in this episode is that I've got a puzzle for you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I love a puzzle. What links the following four things together? Uh, I don't know. What? Uh, that's a bit hard. Well, I'm about to, you haven't oh. <laughs> to tell you the things. <laughs> you <Jesus. paused>. <laughs> 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 on, what, what number am I thinking of? Okay, here are the four things. Yeah. Johann Sebastian Bach, Jack Nicholson, Taco Bell, and a solar eclipse. Uh, What's the common denominator of all those things? Oh my God, Witches of Eastwick? No, I don't think you're going to get it. Oh. Uh, but I'll be amazed if you do. Um, is it a film? No. I don't know. It's the Moog Synthesizer. The Moog Synthesizer, oh my yeah. God. Today, May the 23rd, is the birthday of Robert Moog, oh, inventor wow. of the Moog Synthesizer, which changed the face of modern music. Oh, wow. So today is his birthday. Today is his birthday. Wow. God, that's amazing. And so our first cocktail this evening is a cocktail that I've created to celebrate his birthday. Oh, you've made this cocktail for him? Yeah. Wow. For him and for you and for me. Wow, man. I love it when you make a cocktail, like one of your own. Because <laughs> I, I love it when you make them all. But yeah, when you make your own special cocktail, that's amazing. I'm glad. Well, I hope you like it. We're going fizzy this episode. We've got two cocktails. Later on, we're going to drink a version of Maloco Plus. Wow. But this first cocktail is called a Slow Gin Switch. So it's made with slow gin and Tanqueray gin, which I think has a nice fizziness, Tanqueray number 10. Okay. A little bit of cocky Americano, bring a little Ooh. bitterness, and a sparkling rosé Moscato wine. Oh, wow. And that's what's in it. Oh, my God. And then Paul sprinkled a little bit of uh, Fizz Whiz. Uh, if you ever remember Fizz Whiz, it's that sort of super popping candy stuff that you put in your mouth i wanted to try and make it musical oh i, I see I, I really tried hard to try and make the cocktail itself musical and but i thought this kind of works it's kind of like crackling with electricity yeah 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 this is the first time that you're going to get to hear one of our cocktails that we're drinking yeah it's delicious yeah, yeah. you like it it's quite 70s yes that was yeah. my intention. Oh, was it? That was exactly my intention. Yeah, I think the type of glass you've put it in as well makes it even more 70s. So, Mr. Mogul, Mr. Mogul Fogel. So, we're going straight into the facts. The Bogle. Straight into the Moog facts. The Moog facts. And yeah. I learned, for one thing, I learned it was Moog and not Moog. I always thought the Moog was called the Moog. Oh, okay, but it's but not. It's, no, his parents were Dutch. The Mogul Vogel. So, Moog, Moog is a Dutch. Moog, Moog. Fucking hell. Moog is a Dutch surname. Moog, Moog, let your body Moog. move to the music. <laughs> 
Robert Moog, born in New York City, 1934, graduated from the Bronx High School of Science in 1952. By 1963, he'd been designing and selling theremins for a few years. He what? He'd been just, that. That sounds like um. Sounds like he should get arrested for that. Theremins. Yeah, like like he's some sort of theremin pusher on the street corner. <laughs> all right, he's got like a jacket. Opens up. Do you want your theremins? I've got all them. Got got uppers, downers, lefters, righters. I was looking at theremins, seeing if I could afford one this week. I'd love a theremin. I've always wanted a theremin. You can make your own. Apparently, I, think, I wouldn't know how to do that. I think you just like get a load of wires and shit and electricity and put it all together and it makes it but i've never soldered anything in my life have you yeah you're a handyman aren't you yeah i am but i don't think i've soldered it well I, <laughs> okay there's a there is actually line, yeah. there is actually an art to soldering yeah like yeah, yeah. it's all about using not that much solder you have to use just the right amount and it's really easy to burn yourself <laughs> as i right. found out and then it kind of smells like chicken when you burn yourself <laughs> well you do <laughs> well i did that piece of artwork didn't i if it smells like chicken you're holding it wrong from that company called thonk remember i did the t-shirt design no no and that was the whole art brief was if it smells like chicken you're holding it wrong because that's like a, a a phrase with soldering solderers use is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, we've got into the world of soldering. Yeah, here. I know. So, yeah, so you, you, you want a theremin. <laughs> I'd love a theremin. I can imagine you just loving a theremin. <laughs> miming, miming the theremin playing here, my technique. Needs a bit of work. But, you know. Anyway, back to Mr. Moog. Mr. Moog. He'd been into theremins and the idea of, like, electronic music. And then he started to develop synthesizers. And he set up a company. So around that time, synthesizers weren't... They weren't in the public domain. They were so prohibitively expensive. Yeah, most synthesizers around that time... Triple figure thousands. Triple figure thousands. Triple figure thousands. Over a hundred thousand... Hundred thousand for a synthesizer. For a synthesizer, was yeah. that like a keyboard synthesizer? No, like... no, no one had invented that yet. So That's what, was what the he syn- invented? So what was it? The 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 triple figure synthesizers. What did they do? Did they, they just make beeps and blops. And they made the sounds. Well, but, it's like but, beep, beep, but you're having to patch in cables. Wow. And yeah, there's there's no keyboard interface. It's all just patching in cables, People turning are... dials, twisting knobs. Well, the the company that I did the t t shirt for, they're just on the other side of the floor. The, the floor of the building. Of the building that yeah. we're in, um, and they're called Thonk. Uh, so it's like a kind of onomatopoeic uh, name, and and if you're into synthesizers, everyone uh, check them out. Uh, I think their their website is thonkdiy.com or something. If you type thonk in T H O N K, they'll come up. And what they do is they make you buy uh, synth DIY kits that mm. you patch together. Yeah. So they're kind of like a hark back to that that old era of synthesizers. And there's a huge clan of people, of groups of people who are really into this sort of yeah. stuff still, isn't it? Yeah. They, they love like patching them all together and making these physical synth systems. Yeah. Because of course you can just have it digitally now on your laptop oh, and you can I've have got everything. one on my phone yeah yeah you got one on your phone no, they were the but... size of a room then right and it, yeah. was, it was like record companies owned them and universities owned them right sorry can i just add in that made me think yeah building your own synthesizers that made me reminded me of a little internet dating story this was years ago and i was looking at profiles of people yeah and there was this woman and she was building synthesizers oh wow and i'm like wow that's really cool i'm like reading down her profile and going yeah she sounds really interesting so after i get to the bottom going yeah she sounds great and i go back up to the top to look at her picture again 
and I realised it was my ex-girlfriend, and <laughs> we'd lived together <laughs> for two years. <laughs> That's how unlike real life internet dating is. Wow. That someone you've lived with for two years can put their profile on and you don't even recognise them. That's crazy, man. But did she change that much? No, she was just... I realised that picture was like, oh, I recognise that picture now. I had seen it before we'd even... In the early days when we'd met. Oh, so it was like an old, old picture. It was an old, old picture. Wow. And not one of those kind of very vague pictures where you can't really get a clear idea of and you, what someone And you lived like. with her for two years. How long did you go out with her for? <laughs> a bit longer than that. How much, like, dope have you smoked? <laughs> Honestly. That is, I love it how you're like, wow, she's cool. I'm glad you didn't message her. Be like, oh, hey, my no. name's Paul. Uh, like, yeah, I know. We lived together for two years. We Did you have an amical breakup? No, not really. <laughs> That's even better to be like oh god <laughs> and you're like hey that'd be really funny if it was like a harry met sally moment where you hadn't actually seen each other and then went on a date like a blind date with each other like you were both like no no let's not do fate like i like the surprise yeah and they'd be like surprise surprise the unpredictable that's the surprise it's more the point of you know the stories we sell of ourselves on these sites was she not into making diy since then no because obviously that would have been an immediate giveaway right no that was a new arsenal to her bow oh was it yeah. right right yeah the devil now makes synthesizers <laughs> i hope she never listens to this i can't imagine she would <laughs> no. I, I think i'm all right if you do if you are listening to this please write in <laughs> i think that would be brilliant <laughs> I would love it if you could write in. <laughs> Actually, I might track her down and send the episode to her. <laughs> It's really funny, actually. I walked past someone uh, today that I had a hookup with about a year ago. It was really awkward because we both looked at each other and both ignored each other. And it was just like, oh, God. <laughs> it's horrible when you have those moments. Yeah, it? it is. I it forgot is. to mention this drink. Yeah. I've noticed when I was making it, it makes you instantly drunk. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I feel really drunk. Yeah. You Already? only had two sips. I know. There's Why something. Is that? Ab- I don't know. There's something about this drink. You have one <laughs> sip and you feel instantly drunk. Yeah, but in a really good way. Yeah, like I feel quite high. Yeah, like it's yeah, great, I'm giggling and everything. Yeah. Do you think it's the fizz whiz? I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, just add fizz whiz to all because it tastes when you're drinking it. It does taste like you're just drinking a glass of fizz. I mean, it has but got. It's also got two ounces of gin in it. I was going to say it's got two gins and it's got rose wine on top. But you don't, it's pretty it, boozy. It doesn't taste as strong as it is. Oh, I love it. So, so, so Mister, where did we get with, with Mister Mister Moog? Moog? Yeah. So, synthesizer is incredibly expensive, and so he started up a company to make them more affordable. And so he makes his first synthesizers, the first Moogs, are around ten thousand dollars. Right. Okay. So they're a tenth of the price of the existing. Synths yeah, but still ten thousand dollars. I mean, like ten thousand dollars is that in relative money, or ten thousand dollars to that money in? No, that was the price at the time. Because that ten thousand dollars in the seventies is like you could buy a house for ten thousand dollars. Yeah, it sounds like quite a lot of money still. It was a lot of money. Yeah, I've got a little stat. In nineteen seventy, only twenty-eight musicians in the world owned a Moog synthesizer. Oh wow, who were they? Most of the others, uh, yeah, I don't know actually. Oh right, I'm guessing Brian Eno was probably one. <laughs> but he wasn't a good businessman. The company's failing because basically they're making a product which is hardly selling because it's so expensive yeah of course 
So his engineers start tinkering with bits of the equipment they got lying around in the studio. Right. And they find like a bit of a keyboard, like not even a whole big length of keyboard, bit of a keyboard and they hack a bit off. Right. And then they stick some other bits together and they come up with a prototype of what becomes called the Mini Moog. Right. This is like Austin Powers, like the Mini-Me, the isn't mini, it? Mini, mini, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't like it initially, but then he gets into it and he thinks, actually, you know, maybe this is the thing that could save my company. Right. So they develop this Mini-Moog, and it's the first synthesizer ever to be created that actually has a keyboard that you oh, can wow. play. Oh, wow. Okay. And instead of having to plug in wires and patches, it's got dials and switches and knobs. Wow, okay. And not a bewildering array of them. Right. There's, there's like a couple of dozen. Right. It's, it's an accessible version of the synthesizer. Yeah. And then it gets a bit weird again. Right. So he wasn't a good businessman or salesman. So in order to promote this synthesizer, the Minimoog, he enlists the help of a former evangelist called David Van Curvering. Right. And this guy loves it. Right. And he takes it, starts taking it around the country, around America, demonstrating it to music stores. And here's where we link in some of the things that I mentioned at the beginning. So David Van Curring was also a friend of Glenn Bell, who was the founder of Taco Bell. Oh, right. This guy, Glenn Bell, owned a building on a private island (laughs) off the coast of Florida called Tierra Verde. Right. And they set up this event called the Island of Electronicus. Oh, wow. And they fill it with synthesizers. Electronicus. Electronicus. Like Greek. Yes. Like ancient Greek. The Island of Electronicus. Wow. They fill it with synthesizers and they invite people to this kind of psychedelic music event where people can actually try out these synthesizers for the first time. Wow. And they do that for quite a few years. Yeah. So that starts getting the word about the Mini Moog out. And the first people who adopt it, who start using it, like jazz musicians like Sun Ra and Herbie Hancock. Okay. Then it gets picked up like prog rock bands. And so you've got people like Rick Wakeman from... Who was Rick Wakeman in? I don't know. People like Rick Wakeman. Let's look him up. All I can think about with Rick Wakeman is when he did King Arthur Legend on Ice. I don't know. I haven't. I don't know what that is. You know, like the story Excalibur and the King Arthur Legend. Yeah, he did a version of that on ice with him soundtracking the whole thing. Oh, really? Like whenever I think of Rick Wakeman, that's what I think of Camelot on Ice. Oh, so he was the in the band? Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. they they had all the amazing. Um, I've got the book up there. Roger Dean artwork. Yeah. Um, there's all the crate. I mean, that's the thing that fueled my love of uh, psychedelic illustration. Oh, the illustration. Yeah, they're not incredible. The actual band. I don't think I've actually ever listened to the band. Owner of a Lonely Heart. Oh, is that yes? That was yes. Oh, that's yeah. the only yes song I know. Is it? Yeah. I never knew that was them. So yeah. So the second lot of people adopters of the Mini Moog were the prog rock bands. And then, of course, you had the first synthesizer groups like Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream. Oh, of course, Bands yeah. who only used synthesizers. Wow. Then later in the 70s and 80s, it was used by ABBA. Giorgio Moroder, early disco, used the Moog synthesizer. Yeah. Donna Summer. And these days, you've got stuff like Synthwave bringing that sound back. Do you know what? Um, I saw a little clip of Dave Grohl talking to someone about his drumming. And he said his drumming in Nirvana wasn't all that great. He took all his inspiration from disco. And, okay. you know, like the, the, the Smells Like Teen, teen Spirit, the intro, flap, flap, flap. It kind of makes a flam sound, like with the drums. Flam, flam, oh, yeah. flam. He said, like, he got all of that from disco because they really? use a lot of flams. 
I don't know if that's a technical term in drumming, <laughs> flam. Okay. But like the the yeah, that sort of you know like flam 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 yeah flam 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 yeah and and so that was interesting. It was like and then when you hear it side by side, you're like oh shit yeah, like uh like yeah. so you know like the beginning of like streetlight. So that, that, that little fill at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, and then if I if I put, uh, you can I, hear it. You can hear the flam. The flam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So yeah, so it's interesting how like disco ended up inspiring grunge. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the sort of really interesting thing about uh, how musicians and artists, you know, how we borrow from ev- everyone to recreate new things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, that was pretty much all my Moog stuff. Oh, was it? What was he like as a person? Do you know? I don't know that there's a lot to say about him, really. I imagine he was he like a bit of a crazy eccentric. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, because they often are. The, the crazy eccentrics often aren't very good at business. And that's really interesting how he basically started a whole phase of music, really, isn't it? Yeah, he did. And... Josh is a fan of synthwave, isn't he? The modern stuff. He absolutely loves synthwave, yeah. You know The weekend's Blinding Lights? Uh, yeah, I think so. I didn't realise that's one of the most successful singles ever. Is that right, really? Yeah. How does it go? Best-selling global single in 2020 and the most streamed song in Spotify's history up until that point. How many streams? Oh, I don't know. It was the first song ever to spend an entire year in the Billboard Top 10. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. I love that song. Yeah. But if you listen to Rod Stewart's Young Turks... Yeah. They do sound very similar. Should we have a listen to that? Yeah, that massively sounds like it. Does, it. Doesn't it? But one of my favourite kind of um I don't know if you call it synthwave or not, but Nero. Do you know the artist Nero? No. He was really big in the twenty tens. Okay. He did uh one of my favourite songs, which is So yeah, I love that track. That's great. It's a I've, great I don't track. I've never heard that. Have you not? No. And um, yeah, basically, it's uh, the Nero got in touch with Daryl Hall and yeah. and kind of recreated his song out of touch. But I didn't know that. So when I found out, I was like, "Oh my god, that's so crazy!" Because it's it's him sampled that he re he re recorded with them. Oh, I didn't even realize that. And then okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's a kind of like a a touch, like it's a sort of a what do you call it? Like a... Homage. A homage, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's not like a remake. It's kind of like they've, they've made their own song, but with a yeah. homage to him and then got him to record with them. Which is kind of how I feel like The weekend is. It's it's a homage to 80s synth pop, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think all of it is. And actually, me and Josh were talking about it recently because the early synth wave artists who kind of really started it, most particularly, I would say, Kavinsky. Hmm. I mean, Kavinsky was the first one that I heard that Josh played me. And I 
absolutely love his music mm. i think he was the probably the most successful synthwave artist and he was very very early he was one of the pinnacle people at reinventing it he's on the drive soundtrack isn't he yeah because he's that yeah that, that that famous song night call isn't it mm. and i think what they were doing was kind of remaking it like it's kind of like they, they've clearly grown up in that era as kids mm. or teenagers and then they're kind of re-bringing it back yeah whereas i feel like everyone that got jumped on the bandwagon were then kind of recreating what they're recreating was, yes. was making a kind of a copy of a copy of a copy, copy, of a copy yeah. so it was becoming more and more kind of overplayed and you know but as i felt like the early stuff actually really had a kind of a new sound a new take on an old sound do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. I like it. I like it a lot. That stuff. I find that really easily listenable, though. I, I mean, like Josh listens to it a lot when he's working, and I do as well, because I think there's generally quite minimal lyrics, and you know, song can just roll into in and out, and you can listen to it for a couple of hours without realizing that you've been listening to different stuff. You know, it's almost quite instrumental. Yeah. It's quite nice music in the background, and it's got a good energy to it that's kind of very methodical, but it doesn't necessarily take over yeah yeah it instantly transports me back to my bedroom as a teenager does it yeah oh what when you were hearing this for the first time playing on my zx spectrum what was it to 80s synth pop what was it like listening to that music first time round? like like i mean i guess everyone hears it contextually in the time that they're in but did you think like wow this is really new compared to anything we've heard before yeah I did. You know, I loved pop music as a kid. You know, I'm old enough to remember the advent of computers and synthesizers. Oh, really? And people decrying, oh, it's going to be the death of music and creativity. All you're going to have to do is just press a button to make a song now. Right, right. I didn't get that at all. And then when you started having bands, synth bands, I was yeah. like, this is great. I love right, it. Right, right. And oh. has it been the death of music? Of course it hasn't. Like, I know we've talked a little bit about AI. Well, I've talked a bit about AI before, but because I have a stance that I was going to destroy everything. And you tend to be a little bit more reserved than that. And do you think it's because you've grown up with hearing everyone say, oh, this is going to be the death of music the first time round, and it really wasn't? Yeah, I'm old enough that I've seen new technologies come along and people going, oh, it's going to ruin everything. Right. And it doesn't. It just gets assimilated into culture. But I think that is why I'm quite optimistic about what AI is going to do for the arts in a broad sense. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if necessarily AI is the same as what we've had before. I think I think AI is kind of, I think it is on a bigger magnitude than the internet. And I think like what the internet has done to the world and how it's changed the world, I think AI is going to be even bigger than that. But it's kind of interesting because I think you are right. There is the kind of thing like, you know, people said photography was going to be the death of art. And what I found really interesting is that Turner was really fascinated by photography. Mm. Um, You know, and actually he went to a photography studio uh, under a different name to chat to the owner because he found it fascinating. And I, I do think there is, you know, being an artist myself, there's a very sort of poignant thing which is like you almost have to kind of become friends with your enemy if you're all in order to survive yeah and like with ai as much as i'm rail I've railed against it the last six months and it's made me very depressed i'm coming to a point now where i'm just like if it is inevitable how do i make it my friend isn't it yeah. you know what i mean yeah you know i remember the argument that me and you had at christmas and i guess what i'm saying you know to have a bit bit of uh humility is that you know I am starting to see your points a little bit. Now I'm processing through the stages of grief. 
I, I, I'm maybe starting to see your side of the argument a little bit more. Because, you know, AI and Moog synthesizers, there is a kind of a link, isn't there? Yeah. In a weird way. There was a good video by Rick Beto that I saw the other day where he's talking about this. Because people are now making songs using existing artists' voices on songs they didn't record. Yeah, that's weird. There was like one by Drake where it's Drake's voice, but yeah. it's not a Drake song. And, yeah. and people are loving it and going, this is the best thing Drake has made in years and he hasn't actually made it. That's really sad though. And Grimes, you know, the artist Grimes yeah. is married to Elon Musk. I don't know if other artists are copying this, but she put out a statement saying, you know, if anyone uses my voice to make a song that's successful, give me 50% of the royalties. Really? I'm happy. Is that right? Really? Because yeah, she'll get 50% it. of it, but... Has done nothing. But the thing is, I think this is the thing about uh, AI. I think if you're already established, and, and I think if you're like an art director or a director, or if you're at the top of a company you can make a lot of money from it. You can really benefit from it. Mm. Anyone else trying to get up the ladder or trying to start in their creative industries are going to really, really struggle because there's going to be so much, uh, there's going to be so little jobs available because AI will have taken up a lot of it. And then there's going to be so much content that you have to push through in order to get things done. The uh, The flip side though is that I think indie studios will be able to make much more high-level content than they've ever been able to before. So there's going to be like a sort of a change, really. I think potentially what will happen is that we'll just have lots more smaller independent studios making creative work, and, and it, it won't have to be done by big, massive studios anymore. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of like fantasy films and sci-fi and, and film. Really, oh, you're thinking animation. film. Okay. Yeah. All right. You've, you've shifted off music. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess like, I I think the sad thing for music though is potentially like, I, it's, it's already really hard to be a musician because of stuff like this. And maybe that's the next thing for the arts really for, for visual arts. I don't know. Yes. Is it, anyway, well, we can, we can talk about this for hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it becomes like a snake that eats its own tail. Okay, here's a question for you. Oh, you ever had fizzy milk? Fizzy milk? <laughs> that sounds like a euthanism. You're about to. <laughs> so I found this recipe for Maloco Plus, the drink that they drink in a Clockwork Orange. Ah, oh, right. Which in in the book, it's basically milk with added drugs, which is why miners can drink it. Because in a Clockwork Orange, they're all meant to be like 15, 16. Oh, is that right? I didn't realise. Yeah. Yeah, they, they played a lot older in the movie. A guy called Morgan Schick from Trick Dog in San Francisco, another right. San Francisco cocktail, he's recreated it. And I didn't have high hopes for it, but I tried it and thought, do you know what, this is actually pretty good. It's all right, is it? So it's made with aged rum, mezcal liqueur, benedictine, orange bitters, cardamom-infused milk, and sparkling wine. Oh, wow. No drugs, though. No drugs in this one. Oh, that's weird. Oh, Oh dear. Oh no. I no. Don't. No, it's weird. 
Oh, I really like it. You like it? Yeah, it's like a fizzy, boozy milkshake. I don't want my milk fizzy. Well, it's not really fizzy. It's not... No, it's not exactly fizzy. It is a bit fizzy. It's a little bit... <laughs> it's a little bit fizzy, but I really like it. It's like it's like... Uh, it's a bit electric, like ba- like a battery. Like yeah. When you put your tongue on a battery. It's kind of fragrant and boozy and quite thick got some weird flavors going on it's definitely weird you really dislike it your face oh oh god no it's just oh Oh. no it's horrible i don't like the the pepperiness i don't like hot chili milk oh the pepper oh i guess there's the spices from benedictine and mezcal yeah don't like that smokiness from mezcal smoky milk like it's like gone off smoky milk it's like a cow that that is ill (laughs) It's like ill cow, fizzy cow milk. Like the cow's like, I don't know, is having a psychotic break and it's made this kind of fizzy, peppery milk. Ill cow, fizzy milk. Yeah, psychotic break, ill cow, fizzy milk. I it thought you'd me, like it. It makes me do that face. Just Yeah, you haven't got a good face. You know, like when your face pulls back. Grimace. Grim- yeah, grimace. It makes me, it forces me to grimace. You love milkshakes. Mm. I thought you'd love this. Yeah, I like milkshakes. I don't like fizzy, ill cow milkshake. I don't know, man. Stir it up a bit more. Oh, and it's got all the froth on it that you get, like, when the sea has all the froth. <laughs> all the sea foam. Oh. Hey, people, I'm telling you, try it. Don't. I love it. I really love it. and I Don't, don't... trust him. <laughs> no, it's really He's good. trying to deceive you. To be honest, it gets better it. the more you drink it. The more you get used to it. That's your plus. Yeah, I is think it? I think I can drink it. It does go quite thick. There's some some chemical reaction that occurs. I think when you add the wine, the sparkling wine. <laughs> sparkling wine and milk. I know. If someone said to me, like, would you like a cocktail of sparkling wine and milk? I'd be like, absolutely, just get the fuck away from me. Just what? stand back. I don't need that aggression. It gets very thick at the top. That foam is almost like ice cream. And I think it's because there's acidity in the wine. And it curdles the milk, yeah. though, but not enough to make it properly curdled, just to make it a bit thicker. I think it's um, carbonation as well, um, curdles milk. Does it? Is that why fizzy milk doesn't exist? Yeah, yeah. So if you if you drink a pint of beer and then have a milkshake after, the beer will cause the milk to curdle in your stomach. It can make you feel quite ill. Okay. And um, you remember like in the when we were kids, like it was quite a big thing, I think, in the 80s of making like um, soda floats. So my brother used to make them when I was a kid and he would pour a glass of lemonade and put a scoop of ice cream on the top and then it would kind of curdle the ice cream with the lemonade and I think it's the carbonation that does it. Oh, I never found that with floats. I don't know what kind of floats you were making. Yeah, and they kind of like kind of curdle the ice cream a bit and then you get that kind of weird... I remember really liking them at the beginning but then there was a point in my life where... I was just like, this is just disgusting. Like, why would anyone do this to a perfectly good glass of lemonade and to a lovely scoop of ice cream? So you don't like, cream? like Coke floats or root beer floats? Oh, God, no. Really? No, I haven't liked them since I was like 10, when I knew the world could be a better place without them. No, they're the height of deliciousness. Oh, no. Yeah. I think this is a generational thing. No, I think maybe you've been having some bad ones, because I've never had a float, an ice cream float that's curdled. I've never experienced that. I don't know, man. I think this is like when you talk to like someone who's grown up post-war 
and they're like sheep's brain for breakfast is absolutely <laughs> delicious what are you talking about it's like that's that disgusting <laughs> no but i'm saying like the generation before you would be like yeah sheep's brain for breakfast lovely <laughs> why don't you like that it's delicious it's great nutritious and you're like you know milk floats like yeah soda floats and i'm like no that's like the equivalent of a sheep's brain but people still love them young people love them it's I'm like sure. It's like people now growing up uh, who have smashed avocado on toast. If I said to them, would you like a Pop-Tart? They would look at me like, that is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like, what is that? Sugared <laughs> chemical molten Pop-Tart in your yeah. mouth. Whereas I'm like, Pop-Tart, great. Like, bring on the cardiovascular <laughs> heart attack. No, man, this can't be that bad because they've been selling it in the bar. It's been sold, this drink, to the public. Have you? When was the last time you went to a bar? It was back in 1942. <laughs> because you can buy all sorts of shit in a bar. Honestly. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> but, you know, it made it into the cocktail press. Someone else liked it other than me. The guy who made it. I'm normally really picky about, like, the like the cocktails that get put in the cocktail press. Like, I try them all the time. Yeah. And I'm so often crushingly disappointed particularly because the amount of work that I usually have to put into recreating them as well. Yeah. Good example. When we did The Last of Us one, yeah. and we made those two modern cocktails and modern bars, oh, and amazing. you loved that first one. Oh, my God, that was amazing. And the second one, it wasn't bad. Josh was asking if you'll make that one for him, the first I one. I think you've upsold it. I don't think it's as amazing as you have sold it to be it was incredible i think it's good listeners don't listen to him he's deceiving you again it was amazing but my point is that those are outliers right a lot of the time i'm making these cocktails and they're just not that good right i'm right. really sorry guys who are making them but they're yeah. not that great it's really difficult to reinvent the wheel continually yeah of course it is yeah absolutely yeah you know just make something fucking drinkable though yeah do you know what i mean yeah and so it's interesting that we're so split on this. Yeah. Because I think this is very drinkable. Yeah. And you think it's barely. But man, since we've done the show, I mean, you know, you made me dirty Susan's gusset pants. and <laughs> But I loved that You as loved well. that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I think it's like, you know, but I think it's like sexual fetishes. You know, some people absolutely love drinking someone else's piss. <laughs> they can't, they can't guzzle down it enough. <laughs> you know, to someone else, that'd be absolutely revolting. Yeah, okay. Okay, fair point. Fair point. I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. All I can do is keep on doing what I have been doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep bringing you stuff that I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, and no, to me, definitely. delicious, but not well, I, to I love, you. I love the tie-in as well to um, The Clockwork Orange as well, you know. And I, and so I, th I definitely thematically, I think, you know, that's spot on. And it's an interesting thing to be given, you know. I, I will say it's interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. That's my plus point on it. Okay. And it's not as bad as some of the other ones that you forced me to drink. <laughs> let's get back to the whole synthesizers thing well yeah i mean and what's the whole clock with orange thing about so switched on back was the album that turned the public on to synthesizer music right okay recorded in 1968 by walter carlos who was friends with robert moog and right. in fact walter carlos had been a key figure in the development of the moog synthesizer and this record switched on bark pieces of classical music performed on synthesizers and it was a huge hit which would have been great for Carlos 
except that Walter Carlos had been living as Wendy Carlos for a few years. Right, okay. From an early age, they had identified as a woman and they'd been living as a woman. And now this was a big problem because now people wanted to interview her. Right. Except they wanted to interview him. What era is this? This is 1968. Right, okay. So, yeah, like, um, attitudes towards transsexuals was very, very bad then. I mean, if you think about it, it wasn't actually that long since homosexuality had been decriminalised. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, not only was Wendy living as a woman, but that she was in the process of becoming a woman. She started having hormone replacement therapy. Right. But she was so fearful of coming out in public that she continued to pretend to be Walter. Right. And... When she pretended to be Walter, she'd had to lower her voice. She was drawing on five o'clock shadow with an eye pencil. Wow. And she had a fake wig and sideburns. I'm going to show you a video of her being interviewed. Right, okay. God, how sad, though, that someone has to do that. So this is a clip from the BBC archive. This is 1970. Right. So she's still pretending to be a man when she's being interviewed by the BBC. Right. Let me try and show you how we get some of these sounds. First of all, none of them exist as a particular sound, as they would on an electronic organ. There's no magic button marked trumpet or violin or drums. You have to build every sound. And to start to build these sounds, you have to start with something pretty simple. This one's called pulse wave, and I'm just going to show you how it swings into a thing called square wave. It's uh, up, down, up, down, just like a switch. If you flip a switch, you're making a pulse wave. If it's an even off, on, off, on, then it looks on an oscilloscope very symmetrical and it's called a square wave you can see that he he is definitely a woman you know very very feminine Mm. and trying to be a man Mm. just for the video i i don't know what it's like because i'm obviously not a trans person but i know what it's like being gay and i know that being gay for me has felt like it's been from birth Mm. you know from a very young age i knew it when i trace it back from the age of about six or seven it was there and i feel like probably for trans people who want to go through the extensive process to transition you know people think it's like a switch but it's not the hormone therapy and if you're going into surgery and having your genitalia removed and it's an extensive invasive surgery you know and and if you're going to want to go through that then it's most probably inherit within you from birth, isn't it? You know, yeah. and when you've got like seven billion people on the planet, you are going to have some people who are born into the wrong body. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And they're going to want to, at some point in their life, move into something that feels more what they are. Yeah. And we've had this for thousands of years. I don't know why people are thinking this is anything new. <laughs> Do I know, you know what I mean? I know. Yeah. 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 It's totally not, is it? It's been actually quite coincidental that over the last few episodes, it's come up a lot because of the people that we've been talking about. Yes. Well, it was like in the Mexican Revolution. Sorry, like the The Soldadidas. Yes. You had them. You had in the couple of film episodes, you had Greta Garbo. Yes. Who was a lesbian. Yes. Or at least bisexual. In the last, in the other one, the... Oh, in the Last of Us episode. Last of Us. You know, Bella Ramsey identifies as being yeah. um, gender fluid doesn't she or non-binary and that is the really dangerous thing about you know the right wing kind of governments just wanting and right wing people who just want to kind of keep everyone in their confined box isn't it it's kind of like you know yeah and just so much of it might just take is like what has this got to do with you why do you care why are you weighing in on this just yes. shut up yeah yeah shut 
up. I mean, the the um, <laughs> the hilarious thing about um, drag, I can't remember who it was. That I saw it on the internet. It's a really really great interview, and um, the guy interviewing uh, this kind of like uh, person who wants to shut down drag queens you know drag performances and you know how they're corrupting children and everything and he's like you know he's saying that they're dangerous for children yeah and he's like what's the number one danger for children in america and he's gonna and he says like oh well you're gonna say guns he said no i'm not gonna say guns like it's my opinion i'm gonna say guns because <laughs> yeah. it's the actual fact the guns facts. have killed more children than car accidents yeah. and you are in supporter of guns yeah. guns laws yeah. in america you don't want to change gun laws but you want to change drag queens from reading to children or but being able to even perform this there's at like, least one state now where you can't even perform as a drag act oh it? god seriously yeah that's just archaic isn't it yeah one of the southern ones oh my god that's just absolutely archaic isn't it yeah so following the success of that album right you know, people are wanting to interview her. I mean, there's an incident where she was asked to perform with an orchestra. Right. And she almost commits suicide over the fear of having to go out and be this person that she wasn't. And when she met Stanley Kubrick, right, who commissioned her based on that album to do the score for A Clockwork Orange. Oh, interesting. So she did that. She did that. Wow. And also The Shining. Oh, wow. Which is where the sh- Jack Nicholson from the oh, beginning comes I see. in. Right, right, okay. And she was still pretending to be Walter when she met Stanley Kubrick in person. Right, right. Um, I wouldn't have thought Stanley would have cared. Well, yeah, but she was worried about that. Um, did he And care? she also did, I don't know if you know this, but she did the soundtrack for Tron as well. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was one of your favourites. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah. that's incredible. I really love the Darth Punk soundtrack for the Tron 2.0 that they did. Oh, I haven't heard That was that. amazing. Is it good? Yeah, really okay. good. It's actually probably some of the best Darth Punk stuff ever made. And then there was a remix album from it as well, which was really good. Right. Um, which is great because actually the second Tron wasn't all that fantastic, to be honest. It was definitely nowhere okay. near as amazing as the first Tron. I'm not... Do you know when you've said about certain films that you always fall asleep in? Yeah. I've always fallen asleep when I've tried to watch Tron. Yeah, I do as well. Oh, do you? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. still love it? Yeah, okay. I still love it, but um, a- anything after the light bike bit, the, the yeah. light cycle, is really quite mundane right. and quite okay. boring. Although I do love the really big, like the old guy sat in the really big kind of like podium chair thing who just swivels around a lot. Yeah, uh, you probably never got to that because no, you never fell seen asleep. That. No, I'm going to give it another go. No, it's quite um, a, it's quite a boring film actually, Tron. I think also there's something about it because it looks so jarring and so fake. The brain can't attach a reality to it, so I think the brain just disengages with what's happening. Yeah, you know, yeah. So she'd already started the hormone replacement therapy, right. and in 1972 she underwent sex reassignment surgery. But she didn't make her female gender public until 1979. And then the following year, she composed the score for The Shining and then a couple of years later for Tron. In 1985, she spoke out about the reaction to her transition. And she said, the public turned out to be amazingly tolerant or, if you wish, indifferent. Wow. There had never been any need of this charade to have taken place. It had proven a monstrous waste of years of my life. And all of her albums since... They've changed the name and they're all issued under the name Wendy Carlos. Oh, good. Would you like to see a picture of Wendy Carlos now? Yeah, I would love to. Or a more recent picture? Yeah. This is a picture of Wendy and her cat. Oh, wow. She looks really happy with all her keyboards everywhere. 
and all her cats everywhere on top of the keyboards. Yeah. Cats to sleep anywhere, won't they? It's a happy picture. It is a happy picture. And the last bit about Wendy. Yeah. Links to the beginning clues again. Yeah. Wendy is a massive coronaphile. Right. She's obsessed with solar eclipses. Oh, really? And she's a world-renowned photographer of solar eclipses. God, that's what it's called, is it? Coronaphile? Apparently. Oh, right. I'm not sure if that's more like a pop term for it. Right. But yeah, and, and you can go on her website and she's been taking pictures of eclipses, like seriously, wow. traveling the world to do this at the same time as all of that was happening. Since the late 60s, she's been traveling the world taking photographs of solar eclipses. She's world renowned for this. I think like solar eclipses, like lunar eclipses aren't that spectacular, but a solar eclipse, I remember when I was a kid, there was the solar eclipse. And I remember I've when I've never it, seen one. I wish I'd seen one. There, there was one in our lifetime. It yeah, was but like I, when I, I was about seen it, thirteen or fourteen. I remember being in the in my mate's back garden, and you know, there's a whole thing of like, oh, don't look at it, and wear these special glasses, yeah. or you know, look at it on a piece of paper or whatever, because it's you know, burn your eyes, everyone will be blind. <laughs> um, but you know, being in Britain, it was just really overcast, mm. and like you know, I did see it, I did see it happen through the clouds. But the weirdest thing about it was is that all the birds and everything just stopped tweeting. I've, I've heard that happens. Yeah. yeah, and then suddenly it was like deathly silent for a couple of minutes. Yeah. It's like they knew it was happening, knew something was weird. And then and then it passed and everything was like, well, you know, back to normal. It's quite nuts though, isn't it? Like the Mayans like, you know, were really into solar eclipses, weren't they? Yeah. They did a lot of human sacrifices on, on solar eclipses. Like mass human sacrifice, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, which is all quite quite nuts. Very and special day. Very special day. Well, apparently, quite a lot of people used to offer themselves up to be sacrificed because to mm. be sacrificed was like they believed that they were, you know, being eaten by God because they would often be eaten as well. Really? Yeah, they'd be sacrificed and their hearts would be eaten or mm. their brains would be eaten or whatever. So it was almost like giving themselves to the higher purpose. Do you know what I mean? Let me pause a minute because yeah. I need to stir my... I need to stir my Maloko Plus because it's goop. completely separated. Oh, God. I need to recombine it. It's making me feel a bit I'm, sick, actually. I'm now not selling this. It is making me feel a bit queasy. Is it? Do you want me to just take it away? I think it tastes great, though. mentioned earlier it sounded like you had something to say about clockwork orange did you, yeah. want, you want to say something about clockwork orange because it does kind of link to, it makes me think that it does link to what you're saying about the government i can't remember the exact words you use but in a way creating boogeymen to distract yes. from real issues yeah yeah and one of the issues that go that was going on at the time that um, Anthony Burgess wrote Clockwork Orange was juvenile delinquency. Oh, that really? That was the moral panic in England. Right, right at the time. Uh, the, and that's why he wrote it, was it? It was partly, yeah. There were a few things. There were a few things that... So one, his wife had been attacked by actually American servicemen. Right. Not juvenile delinquents. They right. were like young American servicemen. She'd been attacked by them, beaten up by them, and had a miscarriage. Right. And it was also the age of behavioralism. Right. Which is a big theme of a clockwork orange. You know, right. take Alex, give him this drug, make him watch these awful films while he's listening to his favourite music, give him yeah. an aversion to violence. Right. That's kind of like an extreme fantasy based on ideas like of, um, what's his name? Uh, Skinner, 
behavioralist psychologist at the time. Oh, okay. So that was the stuff that was going on. And I don't know if you know this, but it was written in Hove. Oh, no Anthony way. Burgess lived in Hove. Clockwork really? Orange was written in Hove over the course of about three weeks. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Yeah. That's so weird. I never knew that. 19- Just down the road from us. Yeah. There you go. That's my background on a Clockwork Orange. What did you want to say about Clockwork Orange? Well, like, what did you think of it? What Did you like it as a film? I think it's very faithful to the book. Right. I love Kubrick's vision of it all. Right. I'm a huge Malcolm McDowell fan, but I actually like If and Oh Lucky Man from that period more than I do a Clockwork Orange. And I like the music in a Clockwork Orange. There's lots of things I like about it. Okay. But it's never been one of my favourite films. Right, okay. I think it's a bit blunt. I think Kubrick films often are. They're very icy, aren't they? Yeah. It's very icy and yeah. cold. I like the language, the made-up language, which is a mix of, mix of slang and Slavic. Right, That's where okay. a lot of the words come from. And that's yeah. where they... Did I mention that that's where the name comes from? It was... He's told different stories about this, but one of them is that it was a phrase that he said he overheard in a in a pub in London. Queer as a clockwork orange. Oh, really? Yeah. What does that even mean, a clockwork orange? Like bent as a six bob note or something. What does that even mean? Like a thing that doesn't exist. Right. Like a clockwork orange isn't a thing that exists. Right, So right. it's strange, it's queer. Right. Queer in the old-fashioned use of the word queer. What, as in strange? Yes. Not, not as in like, yeah... But he did also describe it as an organic entity full of juice and sweetness and agreeable colour, but turned into a mechanism. I mean, I watched Clockwork Orange years ago, and I was actually quite disappointed with it. You know, I had heard about it being this really controversial film that was quite sensational. But I think when I come, came to watch it in the sort of early 2000s, when I was sort of like a, a, te- a teenager or 20-something, it just didn't have the effect on me because I'd seen more radical things since then. Yeah. And... um I'm actually not a big fan of Stanley Kubrick's work. You're not? No, I'm not. I don't really like The Shining. I don't really like 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> I've never actually right. watched it. I find it deeply, entrenchingly boring. I think he has a great visual artistic eye. And I remember watching Full Metal Jacket and being really disappointed with that. And that's why okay. I started the episode with me being called Piles. Because it's the character in right. that. Right. I wondered why you were called. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. And it's funny because I was expecting Full Metal Jacket to be this amazing Vietnam film. And it was deeply, I found, depressing and boring and 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 it didn't go anywhere. But it was only until I rewatched it years later that I kind of saw it for for actually what it is. It's kind of like a film in two parts. And actually the boot camp and what happens to Piles is again another commentary a bit like in Clockwork Orange dehumanizing dehumanizing and 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 that's what the American military that's that's one of the main problems they had in Vietnam with their soldiers their psychological tempering and with recruits was to sort of be like turning them into killing machines Mm. and dehumanizing them and being like you know that's the enemy go and fight them and kill 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 and what they realized is that that had a huge psychological impact on soldiers it caused too much emotional PTSD so now what they what they did after that and that's that's what they ha- use in the military now is that you're not going to kill your enemy you are defending your country you are heroes defending the people that you love and the culture that you love yeah even if it's in another country and you're bombing the shit out of them i'm not sure how well it's working because when i was doing research on this a few years ago one third of all american military personnel whatever their role are either on antidepressants or antipsychotics. Well, I'm not surprised. One third. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And that's hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, but I think 
I think the world is a third of the world is on antidepressants and antipsychotics now. <laughs> yeah, fair point. You okay. know, and actually, <laughs> yeah. and and I think there is a reason why. I, I actually came across this recently. Half of this podcast is <laughs> half of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, interesting. I read an uh, an interesting article recently about how food changes the genetic nature within us uh, to the point where actually what your grandparents eat mm. will affect how the grandchildren develop really and who they become yeah the generational link between food <laughs> has a huge impact on the genomes it makes sense know why it's because my granddad used to eat tripe and that make now it all makes sense that's why <laughs> right. i need medication well potentially yeah there, there, i mean there's, there's all sorts of like reasons for it but so they used ants okay so ants are all born the same hmm. okay but the only difference between the queen ant and all the worker ants is that the queen ant eats royal jelly. And that's the thing that turns that ant into a queen ant to make the hive and everything. That's the only difference. So extrapolating that into into other things, they have learned that the micro uh, nutrients it changes our genetics in all sorts of ways. So, you know, eating nutritious food will make you healthy, but all the different types of nutritions and vitamins in all the different types of foods have a huge knock-on effect not just for you but for your children and for their children and for their children's children wow that's scary so this is going back to antidepressants there's also a big link that gut uh, bacteria there's a link that gut bacteria could be causing autism in kids so that gut bacteria in mothers when they're pregnant could be causing autism in, in children neurodivergence so you know if you link the food that we eat, our gut bacteria, potentially creating neurodivergence or whatever. You know, if you look at the big picture and the fact that our food is becoming so much more processed over the last 30, 40 years and the rise of obesity, of antidepressants, of yeah. neurodivergency, surely there is a link there. I'm sure there is. I'm thinking of all the things I used to love as a kid, and I'm thinking something popped into my head: primula cheese spread, right? Which I'm sure is probably more plastic than cheese. Yeah, most probably. But I used to love that stuff. Well, it's, what's really interesting about cheese is that you know the cheese in America that is deemed to be safe is actually incredibly bad for you and gives you all sorts of things like diabetes, brain tumors, cancers. Whereas the cheese that they deem as being dangerous, like blue cheese in, a, in France, that has all of the natural bacterias in it, is really good for your gut bacteria. It promotes lactobacillus, which is a really good anti-inflammatory in your body. And, you know, eating things like blue cheese and all of that with all, that, all the grubbiness in it actually makes you much stronger and makes you much healthier as a person. And so there you go. The cheese that you were eating as a kid probably has had a huge impact on you later in life yeah well the, i think the really hard thing is like to eat healthy nowadays is very very difficult because the nutrition in vegetables and fruit is nowhere near what it used to be 50 years ago because mm. of over farming all the nutrients in our healthy food is declining as well Do is you that, know what I mean? is that scientifically proven well yeah i mean if you over farm soil you keep on farming it and farming it from the mm. topsoil because the roots only grow down so far. Yeah. You're not uh, turning it over. And also, you know, every time we shit and everything, it goes into massive sewage processing facilities where really 
if it was in the natural world, every time we take a shit, it lands on the ground and it goes into the soil and it refertilizes the soil. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, pig farms and in the industrialized meat farms is creating algae that is toxically poisonous. And if your dog jumps into a lake with this toxic poison algae, it will die within an hour. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's crazy the world that we live in, really. Yeah. And that's why the trans argument is a really good deflection from all of this. I see. Okay, I wonder so where you were going then. Let, okay. let's, let's have everyone arguing over who uses what bathroom. bathroom yeah. And meanwhile, let's just continue polluting the planet and feeding everyone really bad processed food. I mean, I'm, I'm a yeah. product that of really I can bad agree with. Yeah. processed food. I'm not being like some sort of like um guy sitting on a throne going, oh, look at me, I'm the body of perfection. You did just quaff a packet of space dust. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I also had a yeah, and I also had a, a Domino's pizza in the week, and you know what I mean. And I had like, I mean, I God, I've been living on fast food this last winter just to get me through the depressingness of this government. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I've I've been talking to you massively. Have I? I'm not shut yeah. up, have I? For about half an hour. <laughs> have I been on one? A little bit. <laughs> It's all right, but I think it is time to bring on the princess and call this evening's proceedings to an end. <laughs> How much of what I've been saying is going to be edited out? We'll see. <laughs> oh, hello, darlings. How are you doing? Oh, my God. So, who wants to be a cocktail? Are you ready to play? Yeah. Okay, so if you've not played the game before, I will give you three cryptic clues and I'll also give you the recipe for a cocktail. Guess them both correct and you win 50,000 adulation points. And you can send in your answers to nogarnishpod on Instagram or nogarnish at fastmail.fm if you want to email those in to us. There's two things. There's a cocktail... Yes. And is the cocktail and the thing that the clues are about? I love the way it now it's just the thing. Are they the same thing or are they different things? Ah, well, this week it is different things. Cool. Okay. But they all relate to the episode. Yes, right. Okay. Okay. So for the cocktail, you will need one ounce of tequila, three quarters of an ounce of Aperol, three quarters of an ounce of sherry hearing, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice freshly squeezed and one quarter ounce of mezcal add the tequila april cherry hearing and lemon juice into a shaker with ice and shake until chilled double strain into a rot's glass containing two inches of ice cube float the mezcal on top oh mezcal float nice. Okay, and are you ready for your three cryptic clues yeah okay cryptic clue number one a Eclipsing the sun with stardust, his directorial debut led his life far from Mars. Cryptic clue number two, awakening into a life already lived, only to relive the hurdy-gurdy all over again. And cryptic clue number three, stumbling across your own doppelganger to only realise that you're not a lunatic. And they are your three cryptic mm. clues. I think I might know the clues. I'm not sure about the cocktail. Oh, oh! well, you'll have to find out on the next episode. Okay. And remember, get those answers in and you could win adulation points to adulate all your points.
Okay, <laughs> darling, I'm off. Goodbye. Bye bye. Wow, that was brief for the princess. Yeah, she's got to go, man. She's uh, wow. She's off. She's run. <laughs> she's running a run lot out. longer than that. So uh, last last w- week, last yeah. last times, who wants to be a cocktail? The uh, cocktail was the samurai. Okay. And the cryptic clues, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. Yes, I think I got that bit, yeah. So, cryptic clue number one. My stories have taken us into a magical nutsacks, demonic bottomless brunches, pigs who can fly, and uh, a young at heart old woman. Well, the first one, magical nutsacks, is... Um, are you saying nutsacks? Yeah, nutsacks. You are saying yeah. nutsacks? Yeah, yeah. No idea. What, well, where are we going with this? It's the film Pompoko. Which is about raccoons and their magical nuts. That's because in Japanese folklore, <laughs> I've never seen. Have it. you not? Is that really what it's about? Yeah, yeah. Raccoons and their magical nuts. Yeah, yeah. So their nuts can basically just like uh, change into any shape, and they can get massive. They can <laughs> get. You talking about bags of nuts? No, no, testicles. they're testicles. You are yeah, talking yeah. about yeah, yeah. What? what? So in Japanese folklore, they believe that raccoons have magical uh, <laughs> testicles. And and they really? can yeah and there's I think I've long time since I've seen the film but the raccoons jump on a a, a truck and his nuts sats inflate so that the truck driver can't see and crashes because they're sort of what um, the yeah and I think there's a fuck. bit where they his nuts sats inflate so big that they can glide and use them as like paragliders and this was a kids cartoon yeah because it's Japanese folklore man. You're looking at me like, everyone knows this. <laughs> I'm like, I've never heard of this. Hey, man, you know, we've got to be respectful of everyone's cultures. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, magical nutsacks. Uh, demonic bot- bottomless brunches, well, that's, um, you know, well, uh, spirited, spirited away. away. Yep. Pigs who can fly, Porco Rosso. Yep, and um, young at heart old woman, which is uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Ah, okay. Cryptic clue number two, being true to my culture, I'm a workaholic who takes pride in hard work being the honest truth to any fantasy. So um, Miyazaki, notoriously a massive workaholic who grinds his staff to perfection i don't think is necessarily a nice person to work for okay um but all a lot of the themes in all of his stories are about how hard work and dedication will get you to where you need to be Mm. so uh spirited way the uh one about the cats the princess and the cat uh, kiki's delivery service yes nausicaa you know they they often have a sort of yeah that theme and then three we keyframed a partnership powerhouse bringing two megaliths of pencil and ink to the world well the keyframe was um a little clue to it being animation and the partner powerhouse in 1996 i think it was disney became studio ghibli's primary international distributor you mentioned that in the episode as well yes i did yeah yeah yeah. so there we go that's the cryptic clues for last Um, time I'm blown away by the nutsacks. <laughs> I thought you might like that no one. No idea about that. <laughs> Is that a good film? Uh, it's been a long time. It's been like sort of 15 years since I've seen it. I got, and I was really baked when I watched it. So okay. I can't remember it. I might check that one out. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you for those. Right. Last thing to do. Spin the wheel of mixed fortune and see what we're going to drink next episode. Ooh. Spin that wheel. The Mai Tai. The Mai Tai. The Mai Tai. Do you like a Mai Tai? 
Yeah, the ones that you've made have been lovely. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Everyone's got their own recipes for Mai Tais. Have you got your own? I've got my own. You're going to be bringing it? I'm going to bring oh. my bring my best Mai Tai shot. Oh, I like yeah, it. Might even Oof. make a couple of ones. Make it a variation on a Mai Tai as well. Oh, I like it. Right, that's cool. it. Thank you very much, man. Thank you for the delicious cocktail that you made of your own making. I'm sorry that you didn't like the other one. No, it made me angry and uh, abrasive. <laughs> And it made me really feisty for no reason. I've come maybe out that's of it the, Maybe that's the perfect Maloco Plus reaction. That's how you should feel. That's how Alex and the Droogs feel Fucking after hell. drinking So it. it made me like a clockwork orange. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. God, I, I didn't realise I was so susceptible to all the outside influences. Brainwashing. Do you know what is interesting? No, I won't. I won't go on to that. <laughs> okay. Well, there was a whole thing. The whole thing I read uh, a while back about left wing and right wing brains. Oh yeah. And how they're genetically different because it's all about how the fight or flight uh, sort of um, reptile kind of cortex of the brain. Uh, triggers to external stimuli. Right. Is very different in right wing and left wing thinkers. Okay. Yeah. Did you know, Clockwork Orange? Yeah. Did you know? Do you remember the end of the movie? Yes. Yeah. They're sort of shooting uh, everyone at the school. No, that's if you're thinking of if. Oh, am I thinking? Have I combined Clockwork Orange and If together? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I have in my head. Yeah. If, if is the one where it's Malcolm McDowell at the public school. Yeah. And they do shoot everyone at the end. Yeah. Clockwork Orange is where they give him the behavioural treatment to cure him of being a juvenile delinquent ah right with the when he has his eyes open that's right yeah, yeah. they condition him to not enjoy violence anymore and is that when he beats a, beats a woman to death with a big um cock yes. sculpture yes, that's right and so at the end of it yeah what happens is that they condition him to dislike violence yeah but then he gets used by the opposing political party in power as look look at what they've done Right. Look at what they've done to this poor innocent boy. Right. And so they reverse the treatment. Right. So that he does like violence again. Right. And the last bit of the film is him like having a fantasy about sex and violence. Right. But in the book, there was a final chapter. Oh, okay. That the American publisher didn't want to print. Oh, wow. And so when Stanley Kubrick read the book, yeah. it didn't have this final chapter in it. Oh, no way. And in the final chapter, and he didn't, the publisher didn't want to print it because he thought American audiences will never buy this. Right. And in the final chapter, Alex has moved on a few years and he's now living a normal life. Oh, no way. He, he is cured, but like naturally through just age. So why why he's matured and he's realised he was a bad boy? It's, yeah, it's not it's not a cool ending. But I kind of like it because I think actually, like through generally, hopefully, a person through age and wisdom and you know, because we kind of apparently like you know astro astrologically, you know, when we go into our third iteration, oh, you know, well, don't get astrology with me. That's a whole other thing. Well, kind of basically, like uh, it's it's not that not that, that big a thing, but. You know, in in astrology, when you get into your third return to Saturn, that's when you reach an age of wisdom. So when you get to about sort of eighty, okay, you know oh, eighty, okay, it's <laughs> yeah. not that old. But but when your second one, I think you kind of go into an age of maturity. Yeah. So first is you know, but it's kind of interesting because I think actually, like, hopefully through age, we actually do kind of simmer down and we kind of see things a bit more in perspective. 
Yeah, she's just become an adult, don't you? It's interesting. I, I noticed that quite a few, like the tear away kids in my school. Yeah, they all became bank managers. Did they? Yeah, like noticeably, like fucking hell, a lot of them became bank managers. Oh my That's god, weird. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. thanks everybody for listening. <laughs> thanks so much. I hope we've cured you. <laughs> cured you of your afflictions. Cheers. Well, cheers, everyone. Bye bye. Oh, and I was going to say, just as a little oh, yeah. um, afterthought. <laughs> and this is going to be one of those episodes where we can't stop. Where we can't it? stop. I was just going to say thank you so much to Elaborate Kingdom for commenting. Um, That's a good name. What are they? Yeah, so Elaborate Kingdom. He said, hi, Reese. Um, I'm assuming uh, Reese and Paul. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to the uh, last of our episode. Not too much banter and good info, which made me think, <laughs> oh, do people not like our banter? He's giving us a link to a, a podcast episode uh, talking about the maybe a more plausible explanation for the origins of life on Earth. Oh, the space mushrooms. Space, space fungi mushrooms, theory. Space fungi, yeah. I like that yeah. theory, yeah. It's a great name, though, Elaborate Kingdom, isn't it? It is. Yeah. He's a very uh, talented sculpture artist in Brighton oh, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so definitely check his work out on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, thank you for commenting in. Cool. Right, I think that is it. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was like literally like a quarter of the size of the hamster.